Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today is Monday, September 13th. Uh, This is Eric Clark from Mega Brands, and I'm super excited to host Mario Nottarelli from Emblem in New York City. He's the managing partner of a brand agency and design and consulting firm. This guy lives and breathes brands, brand intimacy. So we certainly have a lot to talk about, don't we? Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to our chat. Absolutely. You know, we, uh, it's funny, we, we both do very similar things, but for very different reasons that, that maybe at the <laughs> opposite ends of the spectrum, you know, you talk to brands so and try to convince them of all the things that they know intuitively, but haven't maybe done as much as they should. And that from an investment perspective, I'm reminding people that, you know, the consumption theme is 60% of, of the world economy and brand loyalty and brand intimacy drive a lot of purchase intent for consumers. So there's a lot of embedded advantage in knowing which brands are the most relevant, which brands are the most intimate from a, from a consumer perspective and brand love and aspiration. And, uh, and so I'm, you know, I'm excited because I've always said, you know, if I ever leave this industry, I'm I'm going to be knocking on your door. I'm going to come on your side because I'm never going to not do the brand thing. It just may be different. I think I think you're on the right side of the equation here in terms of the food chain. I think, uh, you know, I'm in the business of building and transforming and you're in the business of monetizing it. So I think you've got the smarter end of this equation. (laughs) Well, I have I have had some conversations with some other uh, friends who are brand, you know, consultants and their agencies. And and they do say, man, oh, man, it's just so hard. They, you know, so many companies, they just, they know what they need to be doing. And sometimes they just can't get out of their own way. So sometimes I'm sure it's frustrating for them to kind of get them to really act and do the things that, that they have presented. And, you know, so tell us, tell us a little bit about your agency and then we can get into the brand intimacy study sure. um, because I think that's really relevant currently with COVID still kind of out there. 
Yeah. So uh, I'm the managing partner here in New York City, where we're headquartered. Emblem is in its 11th year. We have offices in five countries. And it sounds really big, but we're actually a boutique, independently owned agency. There's uh, 80 of us worldwide, so it's a relatively small group. We help clients of every size and type. We work across industries by design. Uh, we have more B2B clients than B2C, but it is a, a sort of healthy balance. And the ways that we generally help our clients is if you are in need of some form of brand transformation, you know, new name, new logo, new identity, new position, new strategy, or you're creating um, a new product or service that you want to add to your portfolio, or you want to, you know, rationalize or re, uh, re-architect your portfolio. Those are some of the pain points that we generally help solve for clients. Prior to my role here at Emblem, I was the CEO at Future Brand, uh, which is a global brand consultancy. I did that for 15 years. Prior to that, I had started a marketing company that was acquired by Air Republic uh, way in the early days of the internet. So I, I've been at this a long time, almost three decades, and it's been a, an interesting journey, a lot of fun. I bet. So you're going to tell me that brands matter? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm shocked. Yeah, they certainly do. <laughs> well, you know, maybe I should start by saying what prompted us to create this idea of brand intimacy, because I think uh, in the, that in that sort of challenge of uh, redefining how you build more effective brands, maybe that that would help your listeners. So let's rewind the clock 11 years. The first iPhone is launched. Right. And what we saw in the marketplace at the time as you know, professionals in marketing we saw that a um, couple things. One, brands were proliferating, you know, ever more of them uh, fighting for our attention. So if you're, on the, if you're on the creation side of that equation, it's really hard to build a brand to stand out, right? Differentiate. If you're on the receiving end, it's hard to make up the signal from the noise. So um, the other challenge is if you are the consumer, you are mitigating or defining when, how, and where a brand interfaces with you now more than ever. So you're in control, the consumer. So we've moved from push to pull. Um, and technology has exacerbated both of those um, forces. And technology has become, for the most part, the interface for which we experience brands. So it can be a great enabler or it could uh, you know, get in the way or be a barrier. And the last thing that we discovered, again, 11 years ago now, was that behavioral scientists have proven that when we make decisions, we make them based on emotion. Yet nothing we had learned in marketing or were using was really based on that thinking. So that's kind of an interesting uh, sort of disconnect. So that prompted us to rethink if you're going to be in the business of building brands, you really have to build marketing and brand logic that uh, that can really win in a marketplace that looks very different than it did maybe decades prior, right? So that started our journey uh, into brand intimacy. It's essentially how do we discover or define a new North Star or a new compass for directing efforts in, in ways that make sense for our times? Bit of a long-winded answer, but that's how it started. <laughs> right, right. No, I mean, I, again, you know, it's so so much of what we both do is is so intuitive. I, I often find sometimes things when things are so obvious, you know, we're all looking out, and sometimes when things are right here, we kind of miss them. And, yeah. and so, 
you know, I, I like I, I think I told you before, you know, I have some friends that are in San Diego and are brand consultants. And, you know, we talk about some of their business and the kind of kinds of companies they're talking to. And, 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 you know, I ask them about the conversations they're having and they tell me, and I'm like, gosh, that's, I'm amazed that they haven't already had those conversations. But, you know, at the end of the day, the, the world is so competitive now that you, you almost have to be willing to disrupt your own self on a regular basis because things move very fast and certain industries move even faster. And there's always new companies that are well-funded with, with venture capital that are out there, you know, spending oodles of money to take market share and they don't care about profitability. So, I mean, there's so many different factors, but at the end of the day, there's 7 billion people around the world and they all have money in their pocket and they're trying to figure out how to spend some or some of it on things they want and things they need. You know, one of the things you said I, I found interesting. You said you have more B two B clients than you do B two C. Is that talk right. about the brand? So, I, you know, when we think about it, the first thing we think about from a brand, anyway, tends to be kind of consumer. But but right. more and more, you're seeing B two B brands really, you know, making sure that their process and their brand and their recognition is is really is really as as relevant so talk to me about what's happening in b2b world because that's certainly part of what we do too so i think the first thing we discovered which is helpful uh is that we learned that people bond with brands the same way that we bond with each other as humans so it's uh it's fluid it's reciprocal it's a you have to think of it in a kind of two-way um, paradigm. And the more work we did on the early days of, of defining our model, the more we realized that if you just stop to think, if you just stop and think about brands less as things and more as relationships, the farther you're going to be. So that's sort of step one, right? So if you have brand on the left and your stakeholders on the right, sometimes those stakeholders are your employees, sometimes they're your customers. Um, and in B2B companies, it isn't that straightforward. B2B companies tend to have very complicated stakeholders. There's partners, suppliers, uh, primary customers, secondary customers. Um, you know, they have generally uh, complicated supply chains and, and other value chain related complexities, market complexities. So we uh, love that about B2B brands because um, while we love doing consumer work, which is a little more direct, uh, one brand, one target audience or target buyer, you know, B2B tends to be a more ecosystem driven approach. So that, that's what draws us to it. Um, the principles are the same though, whether you're trying to build a bond with your employees or your customers or your influencers or the media, uh, they all matter and they all have to be kind of nurtured in, in specific ways. And so again, focus on that relationship side of it, however complex or straightforward it is, is the key. The, you know, you just released a new kind of an update to your brand intimacy study, and it was kind of an update based on the data that you've collected through COVID. And, and you know, I see it as a, as a stock picker trying to identify consumer behavior um, through COVID and then coming out of COVID. You know, I, I certainly see some winners and some of them are short-term winners and they might mean revert back. And some of them have taken millions of customers and we'll keep them forever more. So let's talk about the study to, to just get a feel for, you know, what, what, what you've seen in, in COVID because it has been somewhat transformational for certain industries 
and certain brands. And, and as an investor, yeah, yeah, we certainly want to know that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Definite winners and losers. So this is an annual study that we produce where we measure the emotional bonds that we have with the brands that we use and love. Uh, prior to COVID, we were doing this in three markets. Since COVID, we've done it now twice in the U.S. And um, what's interesting about COVID in, in the context of brands is that we had this incredible drop in consumer retail spending uh, around April of 2020. Uh, and then it, you see this kind of gradual um, increase back to either pre-pandemic or slightly higher than pre-pandemic times. So if you imagine this huge glyph and a huge rise, what we were curious about is what's happening with the way people feel about brands. And what we discovered in the two studies is that there was no drop. In fact, the reverse happened. People actually bonded with brands more since COVID than, um, than prior. And probably a couple of obvious theories for that, right? The more we've been dislocated from our regular lives and, and the people in them, the more brands have, I think, assumed a, a pivotal role. And frankly, we needed some of these brands to survive, whether it's Amazon or technology brands or what have you. Without some of them, I think we would have been in far worse uh, shape. Um, so I think it's kind of obvious that those brands did well, but uh, you're right. It's been a, a kind of range of a lot of winners and then some significant losers. The other thing that's happened between the first pandemic study and the second one is the mood and the way people are bonding with brands has slightly changed. So in the early days, uh, a lot of emphasis on streaming brands, technology brands, and a lot of emphasis on nostalgic brands. So whether it was comfort food or brands that were bringing us, um, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings, those tended, tend to, tended to do better in the early part of the pandemic. Fast forward to now, what we're seeing is um, um, retail brands are doing much better and people are looking for brands that are more around fulfillment. And so people that are looking to either get something or uh, transact in more meaningful ways uh, tends to be the focus uh, for performance now. The, I love some of the, you know, you really got into demographics, male and female, you know, I mean, let's face it, you know, and our focus is the same. If, if you're a company and you are appealing to men and women, kids and adults here and abroad, those are obviously really interesting companies and which makes them probably pretty interesting stocks. And a couple of the key findings I really thought were, were, were interesting, particularly now where this, the, the, as the inflation heats up, this pricing power with brands, the most relevant brands having that pricing power. I mean, one, again, it's very intuitive, <clears throat> excuse me, but you really showed that, gosh, if you have high brand intimacy, you really have the ability and consumers are just okay with you know, paying more for your product or service. And that's yeah. an economic moat that most people don't focus on too much, but it's powerful. There's some amazing um, financial benefits to brand intimacy. One of them that you just mentioned is this desire to pay up to 20% more. So the more intimate you are, the more you, we, the more intimate you are, the more we know you're willing to spend on a product. So that's pretty, uh, important. The other is that the more intimate you are, the less you're willing to live without that product in your life. 
so that's another sort of flip side scenario of that same stat. And we also know that um, the more intimate you are, the more you use the product. Um, so that's another key thing. And the more you're engaged with it. So it's not just using it, but using it meaningfully. So those are important measures. And if you back away and look at um, performance overall, what, what we like to do is measure the top intimate brands and then we compare them to the Fortune 500 and the Standard & Poor's indexes. And every year our brands outperform them in revenue and in profit. And in the last three or four years, we've been comparing stock performance and we, we beat those brands significantly on stock too. In fact, this post pandemic version, we, uh, had, we saw some incredible profit uh, in profit uh, performance improvement. Uh, so intimate brands are out profiting the Standard and & Poor's and Fortune 500 brands. And you know, those indexes are hard to beat. So I think if you're beating them, you're doing something right. Yeah, I, I mean, and you know, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. In, in a lot of my conversations, I always, I always try to remind people, like if you look at since the indexes were created, since the sectors were created, for some reason, and I think we probably know why, I mean, consumer discretionary as a sector, and I hate using the word sector because it's, you know, retail sales alone is five and a half trillion. So if that's a sector, it's, it's a darn large one relative to right. other sectors, but, but consumer discretionary in aggregate has, has the best beat rate versus the market, the S&P 500, on a calendar basis, going all the way back to the 1998 when, when these indexes were created. And again, it's pretty intuitive. If you're a consumer economy, we are, and you're good more often than you're bad, we are, then naturally the best brands, the most intimate, you know, that have the best consumer intimacy that, and, and relevancy probably are doing pretty good. And the data shows that. And that's, again, one of the reasons why I created the brands index, which is the 200 brands you know, what we think are the most important brands across important consumption categories. We update that every December and, and the, the fund itself has outperformed pretty handily. It doesn't always happen every year. There's all kinds of things that happen, you know, one year versus the next year. But if you take a, a step back for many obvious and logical reasons, something that's dedicated to brands and consumption is, is probably a pretty decent uh, basket of stocks. And the nice thing is you recognize 90% or more of the names. And, and that matters most, right. obviously, when the market's having a hissy fit and the media is scaring you to death. And then you can look and say, well, gosh, I still love Costco. I go every Sunday. I have that project in my backyard. I went to Home Depot and Lowe's this weekend. You know, my kids love Nike and Adidas and my wife loves Lululemon or whatever the case is. Right. Yeah. They're, they're understandable and they're in your daily life. You mentioned something earlier, which I think is important, and that is the role of demographics. We, we look at demographics because we want to see patterns, right, between the uh, older generations or younger generations, between male and female, between, um, you, know, uh, you know, income levels and so on. And what's interesting for us is millennials, for example, is a great forward indicator of future brand success. So brands that are doing very well with that audience, we see generally maturing years later in the overall study. So um, there's some predictive aspects to this work that I, I think are fascinating. You know, we saw Amazon's dominance four or five years before it reached number one. Uh, and now we're seeing it with other brands like in, um, for example, YouTube or some of the, the gaming platform brands. So, you know, that's the part that makes the work exciting that it's a bit of a crystal ball for us. 
Now, now, do you use a, a lot of your research to do a lot of outreach to different companies? And, you know, if, you know, if your team says, gosh, you know, here's this company and we think they have such opportunity, they don't seem to be really executing on that opportunity or maybe even focused on that opportunity. We're going to reach out to them and, you know, have a dialogue with them to, to show them kind of what we're seeing. I mean, does, does your business do, do some of that or is it, or, or people just calling you most of the time? Yeah, no, it's both things. And we, you know, brand intimacy for us is our calling card. So in the early days, we spent a lot of time educating and trying to explain why it was important to measure emotion. And now we find that a lot of, especially large companies, a lot of them are doing forms of this. Remember, we're not saying to marketers, hey, stop what you're doing or CFOs or CEOs. We're not saying change change those other things you're looking at. Like, you know, net promoter score is a great measure. A lot of people use it. And that's fine. Keep using it, you know, or brand value. There's a lot of different, you know, is reputation important? We're not suggesting this replaces any of those things. We think that this is a great uh, addition or a way to augment the way you measure a brand or the way you architect the brand. And it's the second part of that that's more exciting, right? So if clients are stuck in the mud or if they're really struggling to figure out what's the best uh, way to get more return for my marketing or what's the best way to enhance or engage my stakeholders, then intimacy comes in as a great lens to, you know, shape initiatives, to think about strategy differently, to point your marketing or your spend in more effective ways. That's kind of the way we use it. Right. Uh, going back quickly to the, the men versus women, I, it, was, it was really interesting to see, you know, on men, you know, you got YouTube, Samsung, Apple, Sony, PlayStation, and Microsoft Xbox. <laughs> would you say that these came from a, a particular demographic overall um, or, or is it, you know, averaged? Cause it's, 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 yeah, this is U S general population. Yeah. This is, this study is based on U S general pop general okay. population. So it's geographically dispersed as well as um, across all age groups and demographics. So that's the overall average. And then for women, you know, Clearly, you know, we, the, what is it, that stat, you know, 85% of the household spend comes from the, the decision made by a female. You look at women, <laughs> Apple, Amazon, Target, Disney, Hershey. I love the Hershey in there. That was, that was, a, that was interesting. <laughs> yeah, Hershey did very well in this year's study. I think that's a pandemic uh, choice because Hershey, Hershey doesn't usually rank that high. Okay, okay. Um, you know, any other, you know, some of the other insights that I that I I noticed, and some of these obviously are are uh, private companies. You know, fast food. It looks like Chick Chick Fil A is still the number one. That 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 brand is just so dominant. I always say, I uh, if that were a public company, I would for sure be investing in Chick Fil A. Every time I look at that place, there's a you know a three lane line that goes back six cars. It's amazing. People love it. Absolutely. Yeah. I've got some of those people in my family that are devoted. So clearly doing something right. Those nuggets are no joke. Um, <laughs> any other insights on, you know, from, from the, from the beat? Yeah, here's, here's an interesting one. We call it the smartphone ecosystem. You know, we've discovered all kinds of uh, interesting oddities in these studies. This one uh, takes a minute to explain. So basically 
the manufacturers of hardware get most of the credit for the magic of those devices. So let's take the smartphone companies like Samsung and Apple and Sony and companies like LG, the companies that make the physical hardware outperform on average, the content that lives on those devices, the access companies that give you the connectivity, you know, the AT&Ts, the Verizons, and then the social media brands or the entertainment brands that, uh, you know, engage us or entertain us on those devices. So what that tells you is that there's this importance to the physical intimacy of those products. The fact that we wear them or that we hold them or that they have a kind of physical interface with us matters. And that's true for gaming platforms as well as for smartphones. Um, so that's an interesting discovery and it's been consistent every year that we do it, that holds true. Probably shouldn't be a surprise, I guess another one of those intuitive things that you mentioned. Well, it's, you know, but it's interesting because if you're partnering with one of those companies or you're investing in one of those companies, you know, why do social media brands do so poorly in our study? That could be one of the reasons. Um, so that's an interesting finding. Do you, from a social media perspective, I mean, what's your view? You know, in theory, people are so passionate about social media, but I almost feel like it's gone the other way, you know, to, I mean, I'm on Twitter and sometimes Twitter can be a hostile place. Instagram, I, I get, I understand Instagram. I understand people's interest in that. And you can now shop one click. To me, that's probably the most powerful social media. LinkedIn seems to be kind of a, you know, a vast wasteland and that, that's over prospected these days. Facebook, I don't even yeah. understand. I never have, but I, I'm clearly not the target market for Facebook. But you know, any, any, any thoughts on social media in general were helpful? Yeah, some, some observations. One, you know, the, think of them more like utilities, right? The, the things that you use, you don't pay for them, that's generally. Uh, you know, clearly there's some, some toxic relationship issues that have developed with people and social media apps, especially, you know, vis-a-vis -vis privacy. What we see that's interesting is that the amount of usage you have does not correlate with intimacy. So, so I might go to a resort that I really like once uh, every few years, and I might use Instagram 20 times a day. That The 20 times that I use Instagram does not necessarily mean that I am going to be more intimate with Instagram than I am with my favorite resort that I go to very infrequently, right? So that's an important distinction here. And um, I think what we're seeing with social media brands, especially in the way that they're advertising now, uh, you've probably noticed this with Google and Facebook commercials, they are trying to build a more uh, emotional and purpose-driven relevance to their brand. So the last two or three years, you've probably seen it in the Super Bowl or other big ads that they've done. You can see these very emotionally driven messages coming from those brands. They're trying very hard to matter more, uh, to be better linked to you. Um, and some of these are a little tricky. Like, you know, you think about a brand like Google and uh, even Amazon and, and, and Apple, these conglomerates now, right? Where the social media parts of those brands, right? So if you think about YouTube and Google, um, you know, we measure both of those, but um, they're really very different, you know, animals and, and Alphabet, which sits over top of all of that is yet again, another kind of holding entity with so many other pieces to it. So that's a big challenge of our study is trying to figure out, are we measuring Amazon the retailer 
or Prime or, you know, you know, there's so many layers to Amazon now that it's getting increasingly hard to figure out where is the emotional bond exactly. Um, and Apple is the same was, you know, people love their music apps um, or is it Apple the device or is it the services, uh, you know, is it Apple TV, et cetera, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, tricky, like, it's funny when you look, you know, just using Apple as an example. I mean, you know, as I sit here, I have two monitors in front of me that are both Apple. I have an iPhone to my left. I have Apple TV, you know, we don't use the hardware device anymore. It's all on streaming with Roku. Uh, we have two iPads. I have two sets of earbuds. I mean, the all of that is connected through the iCloud. I, I mean... You know, a Apple is quite, in my opinion, quite possibly the most impressive consumer staple that's ever been created. I mean, more so than toilet paper, you know, paper towels, all that stuff, because they they have somehow gotten into our lives in a way that and, and have created this ecosystem that we're deathly afraid of, of avoiding. Like, I would probably love to try a Samsung phone, but I'm scared to death to try a Samsung phone because I don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work. And I tried a droid once with Google. I mean, I think the pixel is a great phone, but it ended up duplicating by a, you know, like five X my address book, which was a complete nightmare yeah. to get rid of. Cause they probably don't, they don't, they don't play well together. So they're once right. you're in that ecosystem, Holy smokes, that's the moat. <laughs> right. You can't, it's hard to think about life outside that ecosystem. And that's why Apple dominates our, our study every year. And it dominates it on so many levels. Yeah, really is a brand that hits on all cylinders. Now, now I noticed Disney ranks pretty high for 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 a variety of reasons. I mean, at least you know now they have the streaming thing. They their effect on kids, their effect on vacations, um, with sports. You know that brand. For me, you know, you know, full disclosure in the fund, I've been building a a bigger position in Disney because it's one of the the what I consider to be a, a recovery brand that has had a, you know, a tougher than average last 18 months that I think will have a much better forward 18 months. And that's really where we're focused on new additions to, you know, who's looking back pre-pandemic the last three years, who's done pretty well, had pretty good business trends, good, you know, ties to consumers, who has had a really difficult 18 months and that offers probably some really interesting mean reversion opportunities. Can you, you know, talk any, 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 you know, insights into some of the other brands, including Disney that showed up in your, you know, kind of your, your industry leading, you know, media and entertainment obviously is Disney uh, and some other brands. So just, you know, just curious or if there's. Yeah. Disney does extremely well on one important uh, archetype. So when we measure intimacy, there are six unique kind of uh, signatures to the, how we bond. We call them archetypes. Think of it like the DNA. And the one that Disney does very well around is nostalgia. So uh, this idea of something that's been part of your life brings up warm feelings, um, something you maybe grew up with. So it has a very kind of a treasured place in, in our psyche. And though, you know, the, the physical theme parks may have suffered, the streaming side of that equation has really been bolstered. And the other thing about Disney that's really fascinating is it's so diverse now. When you think about Marvel and Star Wars and all the other properties that it commands, it really means a lot to so many different age groups now and so many different tentacles to the brand. 
Um, it's really, you know, if you think about it from a pure content perspective, there's really very few brands of that caliber that can, can match it. Yeah. I always ask, you know, people like you and yours, you know, where you sit, you know, what are your favorite brands? What brands are you really emotionally connected to? Whether, and part of it could be business or it could be personal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I start a lot of meetings with that question. So I appreciate you asking, you know, for me, the most intimate brands in my life are Apple, uh, Patagonia is another brand that I have strong intimacy with, um, New York times. And I would say, yeah, the, those plus I'm trying to think, um, Netflix, HBO, <laughs> Um, Nike. Yeah. I have to say, I was skeptical about the HBO thing. I wish, I wish I could own HBO in, in its own, you know, I don't, I don't want all the other garbage. I hate to say that garbage. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure they're lovely businesses run by lovely people, but I, you know, it seems, you know, a, a lot of big brands, they tend to become a house of brands. And if it's done correctly, as an investor anyway, you can invest in that basket knowing that knowing where your exposures are, which is good. But then other yeah. brands you you get, you know, you, you would love to take two thirds of that company's, you know, brands and right. discard the others because they, they kind of water down your exposure. So I mean, right. HBO, I have been unbelievably pleased with HBO Max and surprisingly so. I wasn't expecting much. Maybe the bar was set really low. But I think those guys do tremendous things. And as an investor, I wish I could invest directly in there rather than now I have to deal with discovery and, and all of the things that are there. So it's a much bigger animal in the new combined company. Yeah, those bundles are awkward things. You know, HBO has gone through, I think, a leadership shift the last couple of years. So it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, they can make good on their shift from a premium, uh, you know, product that was limited to something more like Netflix, which is producing much more volume and, and breadth. Uh, we'll see, you know, yeah. see if they can pull that off, especially with all the new entrants. The whole streaming space is so dynamic and, um, and compelling and such an incredible amount of energy and investment going in there. You know, there's going to be some consolidation for sure. You know, there's going to be some, some winners and losers there. It's interesting to watch. And we're all benefiting as, as the audience, because there's all this great product that we can sample and, and see. Yeah, I, I have like the glory days of streaming. <laughs> well, it, it's almost an arms race, though, you know, <clears throat> as an yeah, exactly. to look well, at to look at these companies, yeah. you think they can never get off the treadmill. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're you're it seems like you're only it's great that you have a wonderful library. And we do. I mean, we've it, through the through the pandemic, we have binge watched some of our old favorites that we have long since forgotten, and it's been a wonderful experience to be able to go into that library. But man, oh man, do you have to keep spending and creating? And you know, my daughter's she's eleven, and she thinks she you know she's she's very dramatic, so acting and creative work is very good for her probably. <laughs> but but she's like you know we were saying it's probably never been as good a time to be in front or behind of the camera simply because there's so much Absolute. creation that's needed. Absolutely. So, yeah. And on, on your coast, and your coast especially, I know that that is 
you know, primaries. So I think you guys are well suited there geographically to take advantage. Right. I mean, la last question for you. I mean, if, if you look at the world going into COVID, the world of COVID, and now the world hopefully coming out of COVID, you know, uh, we talked a little earlier, there have been certain brands that were elevated simply, I would even call it in some ways luck. They were in the right place with the right product or service with the right delivery mechanism uh, at the right time. And some people, if you pulled a lot of clients in, hopefully you have the ability to retain those. And now you're starting out the post COVID world with a much bigger client base with new loyalty. And in, in many ways, I use, I use Etsy as a good example of this. I mean, the best thing in the world that ha for, for Etsy was COVID from a marketing perspective. It drove so much traffic to their site for masks and you know, gave them so much brand awareness. Whether they can hold on to that is anybody's guess. But as you look at the, you know, the landscape, are there any brands that you think really benefited and will continue to benefit or benefited and probably will lose that benefit because because that's one of the areas that me and my team are really focused on you know who's who's had a good lift that may give it all back and their stock price doesn't reflect it so let's avoid those names and who maybe had a had a lift and probably will continue that and those are probably pretty good names to focus on um, or obviously then the last part is who's had a really dreadful you know 18 months that might have a lot better live nation comes to mind for me i mean I don't know about you, I'm a big music guy. Concerts yeah. probably have the biggest pent up demand of any category. So I'm certainly being patient with, with Live Nation and adding to that one on dips because I feel like they're gonna have the most robust three years of any business and, and industry. Yeah, should be a strong rebound there. Well, I guess the first part of your question, you know, the, the obvious ones are brands like Zoom and Lysol and Purell did extremely well in the early days of the pandemic. In the, go, in the second round of the study, we're seeing most of that performance holding, which is surprising. I thought, you know, we would have seen some erosion, um, but they're holding at the moment uh, for the most part. And those brands, for the most part, have also diversified and or doubled down on their investments. So, you know, Zoom was kind of overwhelmed with demand and and. Um, and needed to scale its business in extremely profound ways. And it frankly seems to have pulled it off and is holding on it. You know, the other things we've noticed uh, were brands that pivoted very quickly uh, in a positive way. So Walmart and Microsoft are two brands that did extremely good work in the early days of the pandemic to both shift their business and their messaging uh, to be more relevant, to be more sticky, to just get more integrated into the needs of people. So we saw some great performance from those two brands. Walmart has lost a lot of traction since, and it seems to have lost it to brands like Costco and, um, and Target, and, but Microsoft hasn't. And, and so I think that speaks to really strong leadership there, new leadership in Nadala there at, at Microsoft, who's done, I think, a great job of making them a lot more human-centric, a lot more... Um, you know, customer centric or audience centric. So I think you're seeing that in their messaging and in their products. So those are some of the quicker examples. The, the kind of major losers of the index of our study are brands that we frankly had to turn off because they were, their industries were cratering. So airlines, hospitality, 
luxury brands, all of them suffered immensely uh, from a brand intimacy perspective, as you can imagine. So it'll be interesting to see which of those rebound event companies like uh, uh, Live Nation is a good example. You know, um, it'll be interesting to see which airlines, you know, or how airlines take advantage of, of recovery, um, hospitality brands, they all do historically very poorly in our study. So um, it'll be interesting to see how they do coming out of it. Financial services uh, on the second um, COVID study did better than in the first. So that's an interesting industry that also could take advantage, um, you know, as we become more uh, distance from our physical branches and uh, digital services have taken hold, will banks take advantage of that? You know, uh, our, our sort of FinCo companies or FinTech companies gonna do better than, than our traditional uh, iconic banks. I think that's gonna be an interesting space to watch. Yeah, I mean, you know, JP Morgan, uh, Jamie Dimon there, the CEO, he's, you know, every quarter, and I, I don't know, you never know what the hidden message is there, acquisition or, you know, just given his, his banker's grief about uh, fintech just eating the traditional banking industry's lunch and how they, they could have entered things, the, the businesses like Square and PayPal, and they just didn't. <laughs> I, somebody needs right. to ask SoFi. I think SoFi has a lot of really interesting, you know, kind of uh, appeal to, uh, to the traditional banking system. But um, well, those banks, those brands are all thriving, you know, the, the non-traditional or the fintechs. So Ally Bank or PayPal or SoFi or uh, even uh, others, USA, USAA is doing extremely well. So it seems like people are much more open to these non-traditional banking relationships. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, the, the bottom line is that there are that this this consumer behavior and COVID in particular is, you know, it's ever changing and it's fluid and lots of companies have taken advantage of this, some by being in the right place at the right time with the right product and the right service and the right way to get all that. And, you know, and, and their stock prices have, have reflected that. So it's funny, you know, if you would have dropped down and said, okay, it's, you know, February, you're getting ready to have a global pandemic. It's going to literally knock every economy down to its knees. What do you think the stock market's going to do? You know, it did for, I don't know, four weeks. And then all of a sudden we printed a gazillion dollars and, and kept printing money on a, on a monthly basis with QE and, and, and handed out checks to everybody. And then the markets are, you know, less than 2% away from all time high. So I don't know that anybody could have, could have, you know, thought we would be here from where we started last year in February or March, but you know, a lot of these great brands just, I mean, isn't that the nature of things though? The best companies with the most forward management teams with the most cutting edge products, they seem to take, market share in difficult times. When everybody's right. scrambling and chasing their own tail, these innovators just seem to go out and take market share. And so the next cycle, they have even more market share with more profits and more free cash and you know more stock performance. Yeah, I think it's important to note that great brands start by being great businesses, right? You can't really fake your way through this. This isn't about spin or marketing for the sake of, of just putting you know, lipstick on a pig. If you're not a strong business or a strong culture, you are not going to be a successful brand. So those have to have those have to be in place first. And then those tend to weather those brands and businesses weather the downturns, they weather the adversity, they weather 
you know, crises uh, better than, and that's really one of the reasons you want to invest in brand is because it'll give you that ability to weather those moments when um, you need to dip into that goodwill or that equity. Right. Well, listen, I would love to be on your sales and business development team, particularly for the travel industry. <laughs> the, the hospitality, like you said, I'm not, I'm not surprised, you know, the, the hotels in particular. I mean, look at the situation we have now. You get overcharged. There's no staff. There's no service. Right. They right. I mean, they'll nice you to death, but you're, you know, you leave feeling like they just, somebody just picked my pocket and I had a horrible experience, which is driving me so more, more have, you know, to have more interest in trying Airbnb and VRBO. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, those, those two industries are really fascinating because they, they were so commoditized, stripped everything out of their businesses that was remotely pleasurable or fun. And now they're coming out of that into this, you know, heightened anxiety of travel, stripped down services and performance. And you, you know, you really feel it now. You really see it. And you're like, wow, this is, it's almost worth not, not trying it. Or you know what I mean? It's, Absolutely. you walk away from the experience completely um, befuddled. And I would hate to be leading one of those brands or businesses. I wouldn't even know which way to go with that because it feels like, uh you know a dire situation it does i mean you know you would think you there's an opportunity to just you know if if i was marriott what a wonderful opportunity to sit back and say let's go over every line item of the customer experience and let's figure out if what needs to be enhanced using technology in many ways cuz cuz you really can do a lot more with less staff not not that we want to get rid of staff because the, the human connection is still a part of it. But to me, it just, it just feels like these companies got so lazy. You know, the industry, it always snaps back. People love to travel. They're going to come back, even if they don't love the experience. You know, a, a CEO of a hotel brand, uh, and I do think Hyatt seems to get it better than most other brands, Marriott and Hilton. For some reason, there's, and it, maybe it's, I have a bias. I, in college, I worked at, at Hyatt, and I, they, they really drilled into me that the experience really is the most important part of that. And I think they do it better than most, but there just seems to be an opportunity to really change the narrative and they don't seem to be doing it. And I'm, I'm shocked. Maybe it's just, you know, they're run by people who say people are going to come back. Where else are you going to go if you want to go on vacation? But to me, it seems more like hotel companies think more like uh, cable companies in that you're going to, you, you need yeah. it, so we don't really care or airlines. <laughs> You're right. You're right. It needs a completely fundamental mind shift and paradigm shift, uh, in my opinion. Well, let's work on that. By God, I'll be I'll I'll be the guy that goes out and hammers people on the phone to to bring in business. I think it'd be fun. All right, I'm deal. Tired, I'm tired deal. of terrible experience. <laughs> let's get paid on the on the lift. We bring their stock price. How about that? That sounds good to me. That sounds perfect. <laughs> say, listen, the best part right. is we don't take any cash for our consulting. We just take stock because we're that confident we can help. <laughs> well, yeah, in a perfect world, that's the way we should do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, listen, Mario. So, for you know, for anybody that wants to get some more information on your brand intimacy and all the research that you do, mblm.com, correct? That's right, mblm.com without the e. So, mblm.com gets you to the study and our services if you're interested. And um, you could also find our book, Brand Intimacy. A new marketing paradigm uh, in all those familiar bookstore places where you shop for books. Amazon, I'm guessing, huh? 
Well, that could be one of them, but you know, it isn't, it is in multiple stores, but yeah, absolutely. 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 Well, listen, man, it was really good to catch up with you. I love the work that you do I, as a brand investor. I lean on that stuff all the time, you know, you and Interbrands and, and brand Z there's just some amazing stuff that's, that's being done on the research side. I just hope that all these companies really listen to you guys. Cause you guys are clearly, you know, who they should be listening to. And I know they feel like they have all the intellectual capital inside the company, but the reality is sometimes the best way to analyze it is to not be so close to it. Well, you would be an ideal salesperson for us. Thank you, Eric. I really enjoyed our chat. I hope more people, more people take that to heart. Um, Absolutely. It would make my life a lot easier for sure. <laughs> all right, man. Good to talk to you. I'll talk to you again. Dude, be well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the Dynamic Brands section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the Dynamic Brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.